0: Very shortly before Russia attacked Ukraine in February, this broadcaster asked one NATO defence minister, off the record, whether he thought this invasion was going to happen or not. The response was a philosophical shrug, and the reply, only one man knows, and it is Vladimir Vladimirovich. As well as a useful reminder that the holders of high office are often just as flummoxed by events as the rest of us, it was an illustration of the astonishing extent to which the course of recent world history has been directed by the whim of an individual, to extend his full name and title, President Vladimir Putin of Russia. It is obviously impossible to be entirely sure what is occurring in Putin's head, but it is possible to speak to people who have had, at various stages of Putin's near quarter century of power, the opportunity to ask him directly and from a position as a fellow head of government or state. During the Foreign Desk's recent visit to the Globesec 2022 Bratislava Forum, we were able to ask former presidents of Poland and Estonia and the current president of Montenegro what impression they had formed of Putin up close. We also spoke to a former Russian minister who served briefly under Putin. Was Putin's rule of Russia always going to end up like this? Are there any causes for optimism? and what's it like to interact with vladimir putin as a
1: national leader this is the foreign desk 2002 i had a long conversation with putin and he told me that he has two main strategic goals the first is to rebuild great russia and second to rebuild position of russia on the international stage and when i heard this you know my first feeling was well He's a young president, it's his nice dream. I know Russia very well, I traveled across, I've been to more than
2: 60 regions, I met tens of thousands of people personally, shook hands. So I know that there's this energy, there's this demand for normality, for a normal, peaceful, prosperous future that is unbeatable.
0: You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Our first guest is Kirsty Kalulide, the former president of Estonia, a position she served from 2016 to 2021. She is currently the global advocate of the UN Secretary-General for Every Woman, Every Child. I began by asking her whether Vladimir Putin had always been on an inevitable path to this moment, or if he has changed.
3: Don't make the error of thinking it's Putin. It's a regime. You know, Stalin mm-hmm. also died, but Gulag remained. Mm-hmm. And I mean, less people maybe were dying, but I mean, they were still dying. Those who were stepping up against the regime, I mean, many lost their life, even during the Brezhnev mm-hmm. area, which is now considered kind of ridiculous stagnation. But the oppressive mechanism of KGB was very much in place. So it's a regime. It is not Putin. We have to keep this in mind, certainly. And if you think that, I mean, there was probably a brief moment... Yeltsin time, where Russian people, if they had democratically made the right choices, very often people make democratically in elections not the best choices for their own country's future. We know it you know, in I, Europe. I and, in the UK. Well, yeah. <laughs> many of us, every democratic nation has every right to take decisions which maybe in history will tell were not the best. And obviously Russians did too, the decisions which did not take to them to Europe. Because frankly speaking, when we regained independence, and Yeltsin recognised our independence, mm. we never thought that this would end up like this. But KGB was able to regain control of the country, if it was ever lost, of course. And and here we are now, yes.
0: But when you met Putin in Tallinn in 2019, you said it was it was better to talk to each other than about each other. And it's a... I think it's a question that has a particular fascination for people around the world right now, but when you do get the chance to have any kind of conversation with President Putin, what do you actually talk about?
3: We spoke Ukraine, Georgia, gas, electricity, Mm. border, railways, I mean, it's a neighbouring country. But my point was that, I mean, previously, and and this has been Russian policy for long, there are nations with whom we talk and with whom about whom we talk. Mm. I much prefer to talk myself and for myself. And this is what I did then. Obviously, things have changed quite a lot. And, and while I still appreciate that sometimes we agree among ourselves that somebody, I mean, keeps contact, and I'm sure there must be also the contacts which are not visible, I mean, mm-hmm. on the public side, but I'm sure there are. So, I mean, this indeed must go on. But there is, of course, a difference between, I mean, keeping some certain level of contact, taking temperature, and organising summit on the brink Mm. of which we were, which Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kallas bravely fought against not so long time ago.
0: But when you spoke to him about Ukraine in particular, clearly the thought by 2019 of doing something dramatic and as he would have seen it decisive about Ukraine had occurred to him. Did he communicate any sense of that? Any idea that he regarded Ukraine as something still to be resolved to Russia's satisfaction?
3: Frankly, no. And I even think that, I mean, his his decision was quite haphazard, even when he read it, finally, mm. because after all, he didn't have resources to go all out. I mean, he took 70,000 to take over Grozny. How can you take over the whole Ukraine by 170,000? Something must have been wrong in the calculation. And, you know, I know, I think I know what it was. Putin has never believed that people, if they have been given a democratic opportunity, or if they rise up and come together despite being under a certain level of oppression, like in Belarus, for example, Mm -hmm. that they actually have a will. Because you remember, in Belarus, people rose up against Mm -hmm. the falsified elections. He said, this is West expanding its sphere of influence. And I honestly believe that he really thinks this. For him, people are pawns. I mean, nations do not have a will. It's about West expanding, sphere of influence or him expanding sphere of influence. And therefore, he was deeply surprised that Ukrainian people actually do mind who is their president when they go and plant the crops in the spring. That was
0: the former president of Estonia, Kirsty Kalulide You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. This is the Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Our next guest is Alexander Kwasniewski, the former president of Poland, a position he held for 10 years from 1995 to 2005. I began by asking President Kwasniewski why he was so eager for Poland to join NATO back in the late 90s and whether at that time he
1: saw Russia as an eventual threat to Eastern Europe. Yes, of course, it was one of the main reasons why we decided to ask for NATO membership. I was president since '95, so I negotiated all the things. Um, we were accepted in 1999. Mm-hmm. And uh, please remember, it was time of stabilization of Russia. It was time of a lot of uh, unpredictable situations, tensions, uh, etc. And in my party, for example, before my presidency, I was a leader of the Social Democratic Party of Poland, we had two types of thinking. What is better for Poland? Some kind of neutral status, mm. finlandization so-called, or NATO membership. And the majority was for finlandization. But because one of the decisive argument was the situation and unpredictability of, of, of Russia, and of course our history with Russia, which is quite long and, and enough dramatic to understand, that for Poland to stay in some kind of grey zone of security and finlandization it would be grey zone of security is, is wrong. So we decided to accept and to support, to back this decision about for NATO membership and me as a president I was a leading person for in this process. And I think it was absolutely correct from today's perspective that's his historical decision, and that is most important for us, that we are in NATO and we can count on Article 5 of Washington Treaty. It means that mm. in some situation NATO will help us. It is good. It is very but,
0: good. But, but going back to that period, to the late 90s, was your personal feeling that some future confrontation between
1: Russia and Europe was more likely than not? No. Frankly speaking, during Yeltsin time, also because of the personality of Yeltsin, I think it was impossible. I met Yeltsin several times, we had a long conversations and of course to say that Yeltsin was a democrat is much too much, but he had some kind of democratic instinct. If he had some decisions on the table, he generally decided better under the, the democratic for, for more democratic solutions. The world can sigh in relief. The idol of communism which spread everywhere, social strife, animosity, and unparalleled brutality which instilled fear in humanity has collapsed. It has collapsed never to rise again. I am here to assure you, we shall not let it rise again in our land. So I think uh, to the end of the 90s uh, this fear didn't exist. Russia was too much involved in all uh, domestic issues. Since Putin it changed, probably not at the beginning of the 21st century, but I'm sure that, I tell you, 2002 I had a long conversation with Putin and he told me that he was a young president, only two years in the office and he told me that he has two main strategic goals. The first Mm -hmm. is to rebuild Great Russia that it means that Ukraine is under full control of of Russia and second to rebuild position of Russia on the international stage and when I heard this uh, you know my first feeling was well he's a young president that is this is nice dream (laughs) but after Maidan, after the first revolution in Ukraine, when Ukraine showed that they want to go own way, Mm. they want to go much more to the West, to the democracy, I understood that for Putin that is no longer a dream, but that is a plan. And since, uh, since, since 2014, after annexation of Crimea, I think that is more than plan, that is an obsession. And everything what we see now, what we can observe now, this absolutely brutal war, against, aggression against, against Ukraine, that is an element of his obsession about Ukraine.
0: That's interesting uh, that you refer to that early conversation with him. He's, he's talking about Ukraine even 20 years ago. When, yeah. when, when you
1: spoke to him then, what was his justification for that? The same what we listened last time. Ukraine is a historically part of Russia. Mm. Uh, Ukrainians are not a nation. And Ukraine has no tradition and not reasons to be an independent state that that's that, that was the main main were um, main arguments uh, why ukraine cannot exist as an independent state
0: so, so do you think this ambition of putin's has basically been hiding in plain sight for 20 years because w- when russia invaded in february even after all that build up there was still quite a lot of surprise that russia
1: had actually gone ahead and done it well but i tell you of course that is you know i i'm a witness of that so 2002 mm. exactly 20 years ago in in private apartments in kremlin you know we had this i don't know it was 4 hours 5 hours conversation with dinner etc we spoke russians what is you know no no translators nothing and i think it was it was he he told me all these things quite quite openly And that is not uh, thinking of Putin, I think that is uh, thinking of many, very many Russians Mm. and I think Putin has a really serious support from the side of some, uh, you know, academics, uh, professor of history and etc. etc. Because the idea of Great Russia, I'm I'm very much afraid, is, 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 is not only part of, of this great Russia propaganda or some education that is sometimes in, in, in Russian DNA as well. That is something what ordinary Russian understand, that the, the, the position of Russia can be only great or nothing. Mm-hmm. And to be great is necessary to have Ukraine. So the, of course, uh, it's a simplification, but, but more or less that is such type of thinking.
0: Does it strike you then that there is a certain inevitability to what we're experiencing now that this was was always going to happen? Or or were there points over that 20 year span at which Putin, if perhaps this had been taken more seriously, might have been talked out of this or menaced out of this or somehow, somehow
1: otherwise deterred from doing this? Well, I think, no, this is not so that this scenario was determined. We had no chances to, to have different development of the situation. Uh, but of course, uh, we don't have enough uh, democratic forces, democratic leaders uh, in Russia. I'm sure that if, if in Russia, at the end of the 90s, Yeltsin would decide that his successor uh, will be not Putin, but Nemtsov, mm. and it was quite uh, serious debate, in, in Kremlin, who should be successor of, uh, of, of, of Yeltsin. Yeah, and uh, the group of Democrats, uh, I mentioned, Gaydar, former Prime Minister, uh, would be in power. I think uh, the situation would be absolutely different. The question is, why the Democrats cannot uh, win the election in Russia? Why they cannot be enough strong? Now, that is, that is a problem. I think the main problem, and I can quote Putin's again, is a lack of civil society. Mm. I discussed this issue, and it was a very funny argument from Putin' side. well, we cannot have civil society because we have not tradition of civil society. I said to him, Look, if we, you will not start the process, you will never have." tradition because to to create some tradition is necessary to have this start point to, to to begin the process that's the problem lack of civil society lack of serious strong democratic forces this propaganda which muratov nobel prize winner said that russian propaganda that is like a radiation even if, if, if you feel that you are enough strong not to accept this propaganda, to some extent you are affected by this uh, radiating propaganda. So that is a is very complex problem and frankly speaking, maybe Russia cannot win the war. Of course, they will, not, they will try not to lose the war yeah. in the sense of, of some very spectacular defeat. But maybe this war can create some kind of reflection or some some protests of the people. But but I'm not so sure that such scenario is possible. And because normally such not successful wars change the history of Russia very much. But uh, I'm not very optimistic. I think that this, this path of such nationalistic and imperialistic development will be continued in Russia.
0: I want to ask about your own country, Poland. Have you been encouraged or pleased by its response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Poland, of course, along with Hungary, had kind of created for itself a reputation as the one of the problem children of of the EU. Does it feel like to you like Poland's current government has realized that there are now actually more important things going on than whatever we were squabbling with Europe about this
1: time three months ago? I think so, and of course we have a little bit paradoxical situation in Poland because this government is, as, as majority of Poles, is very pro-Ukrainian. Traditionally is, let's say, not very very much pro-Russia, but because long history. And in sense of Europe was very eurosceptical mm. with the, some part of the government which is really openly anti-European. Mm. And the problem is that today the majority of this government, together with this anti-European group, is one, one, one seat in the parliament. So to keep the majority, they were they working with this anti-European group. But what is big change after aggression, this government, this eurosceptical government, understood that one of the main conditions to support Ukraine and probably to win this, this war is unity of, of the West and the unity of European Union. And today is no place for troublemakers in, in European Union and today is necessary to be close and Poland has a special role to play because Poland speaking about Ukraine, organizing support for, for Ukraine, organizing support for Ukrainian refugees and mm-hmm. we have still in Poland something around 2 million Ukraine, Ukrainians only refugees, then we have one million who, were, who are living with us earlier. That is necessary to, to, to change this politics. But I see that the understanding of the role of, of, of European Union and the Poland cannot be on the margin of European Union when we want to discuss about Ukraine is, is, is shared by, by, by the leadership of, of, of the government, what is a big change and positive change. It seems to me at
0: least like a moment that this is where the EU has figured out, oh, hang on, this is actually what we stand for. This is this is the purpose of this organisation. D- does it feel like kind of a, I mean, coming of age is the wrong phrase because the EU's been with us for ages, but does it feel like some sort of
1: transcendent moment for the EU? Yes, uh, I think it is. And in my opinion, something changed in, in your opinion. The first, of course, sometimes I, I, I hear such voices, well, uh, that is not very serious. Europe is only maybe united politically, but we have problems with the, mm, the packages of sanctions, etc. Et my opinion is absolutely different. So first, this unity is really unprecedented. That's his next so-called success of Putin. He didn't expect such such unity. We have six package of of sanctions, and it will work. It will, in my opinion, it can mitigate Russian politics because of of of, of all these consequences of the sanctions. And I think politically now, and I expect very much this what would happen next next days. Is necessary to say to Ukrainians that they will be candidates for f- full pledged membership in the European Union? Because uh, of course today to negotiate this uh, membership is, is impossible, we have a war. But politically, this declaration from EU is absolutely necessary, especially for Ukrainian morale. Mm. because if we expect that Ukrainians will fight, on behalf of us, for our common values, democracy, freedom, etc. In our region, in Eastern Europe, we understand that they are fighting not only on behalf of us, to some extent they are fighting instead us. Because if Putin will go with his imperialistic policy further, so the next maybe are Baltic states, maybe Poland, so that that is necessary to understand. And and they need such support. For Ukrainians is extremely important to know where is the goal? Where is this goal? I'm kidding sometimes that for European Union this is not a big problem, because still have, we will have still the empty chair after UK. And you know, after UK to add only Ukraine. This is even by alphabet the same place, you know. That's. But of course the process is much more complicated. This process is not beginning now, because Ukrainians did a lot for preparation in the last years, and even now during the war in sense of some uh, legislation etc i think even if well that i will not tell you because that's is very not very optimistic scenario for for the end of the war but in any case i think the next uh, weeks we should we should propose for for ukraine uh, this status of candidate and if we will do it if european union will do it it will be really some historical decision and and uh, maybe Understanding that that we have to work closer, more united and more effective as before. That was the
0: former president of Poland, Alexander Kwasniewski. You're listening to the Foreign Desk with me Andrew Muller. My next guest is the President of Montenegro, Milo Djukanovic. We first discussed the apparent Russian-backed coup attempt in Montenegro in 2016 and if President Djukanovic thought the rest of Europe should have taken it more seriously as a warning of Russia's future designs on the continent.
4: dobro ste na taj kontinuitet ruskog destruktivnog djelovanja u Eastern Europe.
5: It is very good that you remind us of this continuity of Russia's destructive activity in Eastern Europe. The thing that happened in Montenegro in 2016, and this crisis that is happening in Ukraine in 2022, actually come from the same political portfolio. Russia wishes to limit the right to sovereign European states to freely choose their future and their destiny. As a continuation to that, There is the idea that Russia wants to take for themselves the political power that the Soviet Union used to have, and probably to return the world into the state of the Cold War. As you know, it is impossible to reverse the wheel of history. I think the world is indeed facing a geopolitical change, and I think that very soon we will have new geopolitical architecture in the world, but that will definitely not be the architecture that we used to have, in the Cold War. Do you remember what the motive of Russia was for its destructive actions and attempted coup of Montenegro in 2016? Montenegro was at the door to NATO at that time. Well the idea of that destruction was to change the structures in power, with use of force in order to hinder or make it impossible for Montenegro to become a member of NATO. Luckily, we managed to resist that attempted coup. And only a couple of months later, Montenegro formally became a member of NATO. Since then, I have been saying numerous times to my interlocutors, the officials in the European Union and in NATO, about how dangerous the hybrid warfare and destruction of Russia is in the Western Balkans and in Europe. They were listening to me, all of them, very carefully indeed. But I'm afraid that there was an idea in their heads that this is just a spreading of Russia-phobia. And what do we have now? Aggression against Ukraine.
0: I just wanted to ask your perception of how Russia has changed and perhaps how President Vladimir Putin himself has changed. Because the position you occupy, having been in power for such a long time, you've had a changing relationship with Russia over the last few decades. Does it feel to you like the moment we are in now, which is a fairly straightforward confrontation between Russia and Western Europe, was inevitable? Was it always going to end up like this? Or were there things that might have been said to Vladimir Putin or demonstrated to Vladimir Putin that might have persuaded him down another
5: course?
4: Well, first, let me
5: tell you about the relations between Russia and Montenegro. About 10 years ago, we celebrated three centuries of diplomatic relations between Montenegro and Russia. I just want to point out that this relationship has historical significance and we respect all our traditions, but we are not slaves to tradition.
1: We use the hearts and minds of this generation to think about the situation.
4: So we
5: actually concluded that we have to restore independence in order to save ourselves from the deadly hug and embrace of nationalistic Serbia, which was personified in the policies of Slobodan Milošević. And. After restoring our independence, we want to choose the path of European inter-Atlantic integration. What is very important is the fact that from our side, we were always absolutely open about our strategies and our goals. I talked to Vladimir Putin before our independence referendum and after our independence referendum, and I clearly said to him that the restoration of independence is something that we want in order to enter the process of integration into both NATO and the European Union. As for the relations between East and West, this is a radical deterioration of the relationship. Remember at the beginning of this century, and the millennium, those relations actually seem to be pretty harmonious, but today we are in this situation which is not regular, which is irresponsible, and as two neighbors we look at each other with rifles. Europe must defend its values in a very determined way, but in the long run, I think we have to contribute to healing the relations between Russia and Europe. It is not healthy to have any neighbour as your enemy, and particularly if you have such a large neighbour, but that process of healing and cooperation will not be simple by any
4: means. As I said,
5: the advantage of NATO is that it is based on the shared system of values between Europe and the United States.
4: When it comes to the relationship between Europe and Russia, the problem does not
5: lie only on the fact that the systems of values are different. The problem lies in the fact that Russia has chosen this system of values to be its target, and Russia believes that it has to be
4: destroyed.
0: Let's have one quick follow-up question to that, and for obvious reasons, it is interesting to speak to anybody who has any personal experience of President Putin and has had a relationship of any sort with President Putin, which is... Was it inevitable that President Putin wanted to do this all along? If you think back to the times when you first met him and the times that you were first dealing with him, did he always talk about this grandiose, I guess, idea of Russia and this desire to restore a bigger, greater Russia?
4: Definitely not. A we were on those issues. The reason referendum on
5: he was definitely not always like that. We discussed this topic, by the way, during the time of Montenegro's referendum on independence. When I presented arguments to him explaining why we want to go through this process, I directed my criticism against the policies of Slobodan Milošević. I told Putin, Milošević was responsible for the war because he promoted the idea that all the Serbs who used to live in former Yugoslavia should live in one country which implied a change of borders and the creation of a greater Serbia. I asked him, can you imagine if you actually promoted such an idea that all Russians should live in the same state in Russia? Then you would have to wage war against many states because there were about 20 million Russians who lived at that moment outside of Russia. My impression was he did not only understand what I was saying, but accepted it as a valid argument. And we finished our discussion about Montenegro's restoration of independence in that spirit. So I believe that he is now showing and implementing in his policy a new set of ideas. You know, they say that people who have been in politics for a long time, and when they say that, they are probably sending a message to me too. But they say that as the time passes by, such people start certain activities that have a character of a mission. So the question is whether this most recent policy of Vladimir Putin actually constitutes an attempt to implement a mission to revise certain solutions that he considers to be unfavourable for Russia after the end of the Cold War.
0: That was the President of Montenegro, Milo Djukanovic. Do stay with us. This is The Foreign Desk. Finally, on today's show, we hear from Vladimir Milov, a Russian opposition politician who formerly served as Deputy Minister of Energy in 2002, prior to which he served as an advisor to Russia's Minister of Energy from 2001 to 2002. Alexander Milov now serves as an economic advisor to the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. I began by asking Vladimir whether he is surprised by the trajectory of 20 odd years of Putinism and whether this feels like an inevitable culmination.
2: Well, yes and no, because on one hand, uh, me and my colleagues have been warning that Putin's regime will end up badly for decades. And it came well before the war in Georgia, when actually the authoritarian crackdown on domestic society had started during even the Putin's first term in office. We have been saying also internationally that Putin will not just stop by consolidating the power inside Russia, he will export this lawlessness and authoritarian behavior. Then came the war in Georgia, then came the aggression against Ukraine and seizure of Crimea and so on. But on the other hand, no, I really thought that Putin has more rationality in his actions. I did not believe that he would launch this full-scale war, conventional warfare that we haven't seen in uh, Europe in decades. I really thought that he would refrain from doing that.
0: Because this is a thing I know that people are wondering or have been wondering a lot, and I'd be interested in your, your views on that, whether something really quite serious has shifted in Putin
2: personally. Do you think he has changed? Yes, he was clearly evolving over years. Uh, There was something that really scared him, which is what people call color revolutions. His main idea was consolidation of power and ensuring the domination of Russia over as much as neighboring space as possible. I wouldn't call it reconstruction of Soviet Union because you see Russian attempts to influence foreign politics. Basically, they they go well beyond Mm. the, the, the borders of the former Soviet space. But there was always this existential enemy, the people who wanted freedom across the board. I mean, just take a look at what happened recently in the past four years across Putin's Eurasian Union, Armenia, Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Russia, they have been all revolting against dictatorships. Ukraine revolted successfully, two times, against attempts to establish a, a sort of Putin-like, Lukashenko-like type of dictatorship, and Ukraine actually never fell under his spell. He was badly wounded by that. Georgia, whatever, Arab Spring, he was terrified by the fact that when people in the Arab world revolted in 2011, all the West, which took Hosni Mubarak as an ally for ages, but when people revolted and demanded freedom, the West supported the people, not the, the uh, authoritarian ally Mubarak. The story of this revolution and the ones that followed should not have come as a surprise.
0: The nations of the Middle East and North Africa won their independence long ago, but. In too many places, their people did not. In too many countries, power has been concentrated in the hands of a few
2: so putin was terrified by all this course of events and i think it evolved all this history stuff i'm not sure he's a great specialist <laughs> uh, to put it mildly but i think these are supplementary things which he was he was looking for you know justification of him staying in power and consolidating power and considering the free democratic world as an existential enemy for years, he was, yeah, sitting in his bunker or wherever. He was building a justification for this worldview, which had finally evolved into this sort of brutality in, in into this action that he took against Ukraine.
0: What's your understanding of what the dynamics are at the top of the regime now? Because it, it is, for all the scrutiny that Vladimir Putin and Russia have been under over the last three months, especially, astonishing how opaque. The regime is. Is there anybody anywhere close to him that we know of who might be thinking that there could be a first mover advantage here uh, if, if, if somebody wants to be the person who tries to effect
2: a dramatic change? It's, it's actually very hard to do. It's very hard to influence uh, what's going on because uh, pe- even people who are close to him, first, they have no idea where is he now. Uh, he has, at this very moment, he has this specially established presidential guard, Federal Služba Ochrany, headed by General Dmitry Kochnev, a name barely mentioned in the media, which speaks volumes about true understanding of what's going on in there. 50,000 people, specifically trained and well-paid to guard the president. And guess what? You remember in August 91, when Gorbachev was ousted, what KGB did is they cut off any communications with him. Now, communications are no longer controlled. Secret, all secret government communications are no longer controlled by security service, by the FSB, which is a successor to KGB. They are controlled by presidential guard. You cannot cut him off from communications. That is it. So, I mean, yeah, I know that a lot of people around him are terrified Mm. by what's going on. But that is one thing. Another thing is, is anybody capable of doing something about that? No. He specifically barricaded himself for 20 plus years against any attempts to to sort of seize power or have exert certain influence on him. So I think right now, at this very moment before the system began shattering, when it seems to be intact... Putin is the man in charge and it's very hard to challenge the course of his actions while you're inside the system.
1: Well,
0: let's have a bit of a think about some of the responses that The West has made to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, especially the ones that pertain to the the, the sector that you came up through, the energy sector. The sanctioning of Russian oil, the near total sanctioning of Russian oil imports by the EU, presumably before Russia embarked on this misadventure in Ukraine, they would have anticipated a certain amount of this sort of thing. So how much does that specific sanction hurt Russia in the long term?
2: Uh, all of the sanctions, I would advise against like cherry picking on what's, what's the best sanction, what's the top of the hit parade, right? All of the sanctions have their impact. So I think the factor that matters is the wide range of uh, sanctions instruments that are used because they affect a lot of sectors across the board. And I don't think that there's anything which specifically can, the one thing that can be a game changer. I think the instrument that really works is applying more pressure across very, very different sectors, impacting the structural integrity of the system. So everybody is talking about oil embargo. Oil embargo is important, but what already has been adopted is extremely important. Now, like first thing, we're talking about oil and gas revenues, but oil and gas revenues cannot finance economic growth. They can only be redistributed for some current purposes. Mm. Our economic growth was financed through capital borrowed at the international financial markets. Now, we are cut off from those forever. There is no returning in, you know, in an observed period mm. of time. Second thing, our digital infrastructure is about to collapse in the next uh, few months because of, like, Google anything, like lack of server capacities, which is irreplaceable because even China cannot help us in this regard. Lack of communications equipment. There are very strong critical bottlenecks across different sectors, like lack of seed bank for agriculture and harvesting. Many, many issues which obviously make evident how critically we are dependent on international technology, component parts some vital equipment and so on across different sectors. So there's, there's not just, you know, one magic tool of, of sanctioning Russia. It's all of the above. It's big, thick anaconda. Very, very hard job to, to, to strangle it. You don't do it at once. And it takes also certain patience because many people already by now begin to demand answers like, are sanctions working or not? Mm. Patience patience. I'm personally optimistic. I think Russians will get out of the bubble, but eventually it's their choice. I know Russia very well. I traveled across. I've been to more than 60 regions. I met tens of thousands of people personally, shook hands. So I know that there's this energy, there's this demand for normality, for for a normal, peaceful, uh, prosperous uh, future that is unbeatable. And Russians always had uh, a bottom-up, a very strong demand for freedom. They never accepted abolishing direct elections of governors and mayors. Throughout all these years, healthy majority, 60-70% always said, we want direct elections back. People are very angry that they have no say in countries' politics. Also, importantly, if you really want to see whom Putin sees as a major political competitor, take a look at the money, how much resources Kremlin spends to fight the idea of liberal democracy. It's, it's clear that Putin sees this as a, as a most potent competitor, the major domestic political opponent. He uses all the resources to oppress people who are promoting this idea because he sees it as something that would beat his dictatorship in the end. So the dynamics is good. The bot- bottom-up demand is there. But we have to release Russian people from the spell that the propaganda has been casting on them.
0: That was the Russian opposition politician Vladimir Milov. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.